From NPR and WBEZ Chicago, this is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR News Quiz. Had enough turkey yet? Gobble, gobble. <laughs> I'm Bill Curtis, and here's your host at the Chase Bank Auditorium in Chicago, Peter Sagal. Thank you, Bill. Thanks, everybody. You guys are great. Thank you so much. It's that time of the year where we stop, take some time, and reflect on all the good things that have happened in the past year. And that's what we're going to do this hour. And if any of that happens, we'll ask you about it on <laughs> next week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell no, Me. No, no, actually, Bill, no, I understand. But we actually have enough things to be thankful for to fill this whole show. Mm, I bad. Sorry, Peter. We're definitely grateful, for example, that the amazing Cindy Lauper joined us on the show back in May. I asked her about her upbringing in the Bronx. Yes, Ozone Park, but actually that's not where it started. It started in Williamsburg, but actually I was born in Astoria from a cab ride, which I was almost in a cab, like, you know. You were born in, you were one of those stories, you were almost born in a cab? Yeah. And I tell you, I ain't been right ever since. <laughs> <laughs> And how did you uh, get into music initially? What were, what were your first jobs when you were getting started? Well, I was a hot walker at Belmont. You were um, a what? A hot walker. What is you a walk hot walker? You walk the walk? horses. Oh. You walk the horses when they're hot. You got to get there really early, though. That's really tough, you know, because you're up at 4 a.m., you know. I used to... No, I, I had run away to Long Island because I lived in the city, and I thought I was missing something in suburbia <laughs> so I'm I sorry. ran away to suburbia and then I realized hey what the heck am I doing here you know <laughs> and then I I was going to be a painter so I went to Canada to the Algonquin Provincial Park and I did a tree study I just drew trees and then um, unfortunately I went with my dog at the height of the black fly season so that kind of didn't work out very well wait a minute you, you decided you're living in suburbia. This is a mistake. You said, I know, I'm going to go to Canada to be an artist and draw trees. Yes. But you brought yes. your dog and it was black fly season and everybody knows that's a mistake. Yeah, that was a mistake. Big mistake. We were all bitten up. Both no, it was terrible. So, yeah, it so was. I, I guess really it just pop stardom was a last resort for you. <laughs> That's well, I had a lot of jobs. I was even a gal Friday the 13th. A what? I, a gal well, Friday the 13th? What's that? Yeah, well, it's a gal Friday who's really horrible at her, at her job. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I'm really beginning. So, so, all right, so you did all this. How did you get from sitting in a Canadian park being bitten by flies? to being one of the most famous artists of the 1980s. How did that happen? Gee, um, well, <laughs> I, you know, after art college, because then I went to art college, and then I came back and joined the band. I oh. went on auditions, and I joined the band. I was what? in a cover band for a long time. Well, but I didn't do good in the cover bands, because I drew all the people away from the bar. They weren't drinking, they were watching. And also, I moved around, they said, too much, like a boy. And they wanted to know why I couldn't stand still and just sing. You know, I tried it. Yeah. I, I walked off the stage by accident. It was a small stage, not that high. And one foot off, one foot on, I was like, oh, man, it's not working. When, so, you know. 
I, <laughs> that could be a problem. I've got to ask you, back in the 80s, one of the things you were known for was like you were really into wrestling. Yeah, I, I was a wrestling manager for a while. I was um, Captain Lou Albano. Yeah, I remember he this. He was. Did you, uh, there, is there a story with him and, and your famous song, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, I'm told? Oh, we had a fight, and uh, I was on the Roddy Piper show, you know, Piper's Pit. And I was talking to Roddy, and all of a sudden, Lou came on, uh-huh. and he said, you know, he started talking about women, you know, that we belong barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, and, you know, he was the one that did everything. But he started to say, like, real sexist stuff. And yeah. I said, Lou, you starting to make me angry, uh-huh. right? And then... He wouldn't stop. And you know when you hang out with wrestlers, wrestlers have episodes, but you hang out with them, sometimes you have an episode yourself. This and happens. I did. This happens to me all the time. So yeah. did you hit him with a folding chair? What did you do? No, I turned over the table, and I pulled on his beard and hit him with my purse over the head. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like he deserved it. Most people don't know this, but you, Cindy Lauper, have won an Emmy uh, for your uh, performances on TV, Mad About You, a Grammy yeah. for your records, a Tony for, um, for uh, Kinky Boots. Kinky how, Boots. How are you going to win your Oscar? Everybody says that. I'm going to have to now. You because, are. You know, <laughs> I got some time left. I yeah, I'm still above the grass. You That's know true. <laughs> Well, we think you'll do it, but in the meantime, Cindy Lauper, it is a pleasure to talk to you, and we've invited you here to play a game we're calling I'm King of the World. You wrote the show, wow. King, you wrote the show Kinky Boots, and it just so happens if you take Kinky Boots and you change two letters, that makes Sinky Boats. Wow. That's right. You probably saw this coming. Okay. <laughs> We're going to ask you about the most famous sinky boat of all time, the Titanic. Get, oh, God. Yes. Yeah. Get two right, you'll win our prize for one of our listeners, the voice of your choice on their voicemail. Bill, who is Cindy Lauper playing for? Allison Carter of Phoenix, Arizona. All right, you ready to do this? Allison, I'm going to do my best, hon. Okay. Well, here great. we go. Here's your first question. It's well known that the musicians aboard the Titanic played on as the boat sank. To show their appreciation, the company that hired those musicians for the cruise did which of these things? A, they created a special Music from the Titanic tour in which the band finished with Nearer My God to Thee and then were splashed with ice water. <laughs> B, they created the first ever contract writer specifying that all the musicians, no matter where they played on land or at sea, be provided with life jackets. Or C, they build the musicians' families for the cost of the uniforms that the musicians were wearing when they sunk. Oh, my God. All right, well, A sounds funny, but I think it's really B. Do you think it's really B, the, the first ever well, contract writer? Well, what else could they have done? They're not going to charge them for the uniforms. Come on. They charged them for the u- so I was wrong, it's not B. Well, you haven't said anything yet, so. It's C. It's C, yeah, they actually did that. The father of one of the musicians got a letter asking him to pay the deposit in the uniform. He did not. <laughs> Your next question, the sinking of the Titanic led to safety improvements on future ships, as in which of these? A, the HMS Bannon installed a speaker at its bow that constantly played the message, out of the way, iceberg. <laughs> 
B, the SS Eastland added additional lifeboats, which made it top-heavy, and it eventually capsized as a result. Or C, the SS Humphrey required all passengers to wear scuba gear at all times, just in case. Um, B. Yeah, it was the Eastland. Happened here in Chicago. Bad idea, but it's the thought that counts. Your last question is about... Uh, the former SNL star Bill Hader, the Titanic played a significant role in his career. What was it? A, he auditioned for Saturday Night Live with his character Blinky, the blind Titanic lookout. <laughs> That's pretty good. B, wow. B, a Titanic obsessive, he only went into performing to earn enough money to buy an actual Titanic lifeboat oar. Or C, he was fired from a movie theater in 1997 after he punished noisy patrons by going up to them and spoiling the ending of the movie Titanic. <laughs> well, first of all, he could never have spoiled the ending because everybody knows the most of that. So, just, can you go over that one? Yeah, okay, I'll go over again. So that was the third one. No, the the first one was he auditioned for Saturday, you know, how you auditioned for Saturday Night Live, you presented yeah, character. Yeah. He presented the character of Blinky the Blind Titanic Lookout. I think that's it. You do? Yeah, I do. It was actually the last one. He spoiled the ending. He was working as an usher. <laughs> well, he didn't just go up and say, oh, by the way, the boat sank. He sat down next to me. He said, let me tell you what happened. The boat sinks and Rosie and Jack go into the water and then they find this story. He told him the whole thing and so he was fired by the movie theater. Went on to wow. better things. Bill, how did Cindy Lauper do in our quiz? I think she got two right, which means that you won, Cindy. Congratulations! Oh, Cindy Lauper is a Grammy and Tony Award winner. This year marks the 10th anniversary of her True Colors Fund. Cindy Lauper, thank you so much oh, for joining you. us on Broadway Fantastic. We often ask our panelists more questions than we have time to broadcast. Here is a never-before-heard question from a show we did in October. Maz, a question about our brave new world that we live in. According to an article on CNN.com, one of many infants' first words these days, it's more and more common that that first word might be what? Um, oh, Siri. The other one. Oh, the Alexa. Yes, Alexa. <laughs> Babies repeat what they hear, and what they hear is their parents saying, Alexa, donate $1,000 to NPR. <laughs> Babies, this is how they think. They think Alexa is a person. If you say its name, it might play music or talk back, which is more than a human does, because Alexa is not staring at its phone during dinner. This is, this is bad, but it's also good for parents because you know that Alexa will now be the one that gets blamed for everything in therapy later on. <laughs> well, I think this is going to, the next step is you're going to have to bring Alexa in on the, the parenting meetings. You right? know? But Alexa never says no. Right. Really? Uh, no, Alexa never says no. Another reason for kids to love it. Exactly. I know. It's a problem. It's a terrible thing to know that <laughs> <laughs> Amazon for $99 has provided a better parent than you are. <laughs> when we come back, Bassem Yusuf, known as the John Stewart of Egypt, and Mayim Bialik, known as the Mayim Bialik of America. We'll be back in a minute with more of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from MailChimp. 
It might sound like MailChimp just does email marketing, but they actually do a lot more to help your business grow. Because growth looks different to everyone, MailChimp helps guide you to the right marketing decisions for your business. From audience management to ad campaigns and automation. MailChimp, they do more than mail. What has epic battles, biting wit, and holiday cheer? Maybe Thanksgiving, but also our pop culture happy hour celebration of the action classic Die Hard. Whether you're traveling or relaxing on the couch, it's a perfect welcome to the party, pal. Hear the conversation now on Pop Culture Happy Hour. From NPR and WBEZ Chicago, this is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR News Quiz. I'm Bill Curtis. And here's your host at the Chase Bank Auditorium in Chicago, Peter Sagoff. Thank you, Bill. It's Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving, and it turns out with just a little work, you can find things to be thankful for. For example, we are really thankful here at Wait, Wait that nobody cares about anything we say. We are totally irrelevant. As the poet once said, we're a mere fart in a thunderstorm. We realized how great it is to be ignored after we talked to a comedian who wasn't. Bassem Youssef, the John Stewart of Egypt, they called him, the most popular TV star and satirist in that country. And he told us what happened when the wrong people started to watch. It turns out that he didn't start out as a comedian. He was a surgeon. Yeah, uh, this is why I sucked as a comedian. Really? <laughs> you started on uh, another thing I didn't know until I saw the documentary. You started on YouTube. Just you basically in a room in your house looking at the camera and telling jokes. Exactly. And at that time, I, was, um, I didn't think that this would actually go anywhere. And uh, I was waiting for papers, H-1 visa papers to come because I was accepted as a fellowship in Cleveland. Cleveland? Yes. Uh, and it, it just tells you like, how I was so desperate to leave my country to be excited to go to Cleveland. What? <laughs> Yes, and, uh, uh, but the revolution happened. I did the show, and then the, the, the sh I thought that maybe with 10,000 people watched the show, and then in a few weeks, I ended up with having 5 million people watching. And I know when you got five, now, like, my cat gets 5 million people. <laughs> yes, I know. Uh, but at that time, this was 2011, it was Egypt, it was YouTube. At that time, it was un uh, unprecedented numbers. And I ended up um, uh, signing the show, uh, like, my first TV deal. That, and it is amazing. And then you, you were right on TV. You had an extremely popular show. So when, when you started the show, of course, you were living under Mubarak. And pretty soon after you started, uh, the revolution came and he was no, toppled. No, 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 no. I started after Mubarak. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't understand. I thought it was your fault that we get, you got rid of Mubarak. I was going to congratulate <laughs> you. No, 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 no. No, I can only be blamed for a few things. Okay. <laughs> So, and of course, as what happens in your life and in your career, by the third season of your show, a military dictatorship had come back to Egypt, and they, they more or less shut you down, right? Yeah, and, and, and the way they do it, they do it indirectly. They go to the people who own the networks, the people who hire you, and say, like, you're right, you know, he's not allowed to do it anymore. What, was there a joke that finally brought, brought you down, that they finally said, no more? Oh, yeah, there is a joke that actually brought us down. CC won the elections, so that's the big joke, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have to leave your country? I mean, so the, 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 the pressure wasn't put on you, it was put on the network to say you yeah, don't get but, to... But, but they then came after me. So the thing is, the way that they uh, go after you, 
no one will be jailed or prevented from traveling because of quote-unquote freedom of expression. It will be something. So it will be taxes. It will be illegal. You know, like when you get, they didn't get Al Capone for the crimes he did. They get Al Capone for taxes. So I was fighting a lawsuit against one of the networks that stopped me. And uh, it was an arbitration case. And there was no way I could lose the case because they're the one who stopped me. And then I woke up in the morning and I find the verdict fining me 100 million pounds. At that time, it was like $15 million. So uh, they, the lawyer called me and said, listen, the verdict came out. Uh, they know that like this is a ridiculous verdict, but they're going to use it either to put you on a no-fly list or to put you in jail. So the verdict came out at 12 noon, 5 o'clock, I was on a plane leaving the country. Wow. So you're the John Stewart and Al Capone of Egypt. That's, yeah. a, that's no, a great I, resume. In fact, I was going to say to you, I, I don't think Al Capone is a good comparison. Yeah. <laughs> he, he was, was hilarious. So now well, you're I mean, uh, Robert De Niro can make anybody look good. So. That's true. <laughs> well, Bassem Youssef, it is a pleasure to talk to you. And we have asked you here, sir, to play a game we're calling Eat Your Tubers, You Tuber. So we were interested and surprised to find out that you began your successful career in Egypt on YouTube as a YouTuber. And so we thought it would only be natural and right to ask you about actual tubers, that is potatoes. (laughs) So answer two out of three questions about potatoes correctly and you will win our prize for one of our listeners. Bill, who is Bassem Yusuf playing for? Neil Barnes of Baltimore, Maryland. All right, you ready to do this? Yeah. <laughs> You're jumping ahead. It was answer C. It's generally. Oh, I, did, I didn't know they had the SATs in Egypt. Okay. All right, your first question. Potatoes, of course, came from the New World, and Europeans were very suspicious of them at first. A French food expert managed to convince his countrymen that they were a valuable foodstuff by doing what? Was it A, he declared falsely that eating potatoes would result in passing gas that smelt like flowers, B, he surrounded his potato patch with armed guards as if they were a treasure. Or C, he paid Madame de Pompadour to pose with one in a portrait, making it history's first product placement. C! (laughs) I like your consistency, Boston, but it was actually B. He hired guards to stand around his potato patch as if they were a valuable treasure, and people said, hey, maybe they're not so bad. Your next question. Potatoes have played an important role in pop culture such as which of these? A, they led to Jimi Hendrix writing his classic song, The Wind Cries Mary. B, a strangely spherical potato with one big eye gave George Lucas the idea for the Death Star. (laughs) Or C, in the original pitch for the TV show Friends, they were all potato farmers. All right, I will will, uh, will, go with um, the Jimi Hendrix thing. The Jimi Hendrix thing, you're right, yes. This is amazingly true that uh, Jimi Hendrix wrote that classic rock song and The Wind Cries Mary because he got into a fight with his girlfriend named Mary over her lumpy mashed potatoes and he wrote the song to apologize to her. (laughs) Oh, that's so nice. I know. Here's your last question. If you get this one right, you win. Potatoes have played their part in war as well as when which of these happened? A, in World War I, when hollowed-out potatoes were used for improvised gas masks. B, in World War II, when the crew of the U.S. destroyer O'Bannon sank a Japanese sub in part by throwing potatoes at it. Or C, in Vietnam, where a massive potato gun was used to try to send food aid to distant villages. Uh, I would go with A. You're going to go with A, that they're trying to breathe into potatoes. Yes. Quick! 
get the potatoes out. No, no, I think it's the World War II uh, uh, thing. That's right. <laughs> it's an amazing story. It is known to military historians as the potato incident. This American destroyer almost ran right into a Japanese sub on the surface, and American sailors threw potatoes at them, scaring the Japanese who thought they were hand grenades. They jumped into the sub, submerged, and the destroyer sank it with a depth charge. <laughs> Bill, how did Basim Yusuf do in our quiz? Well, he did great. He got two. <laughs> Basim, you got two out of three. That means a win. Welcome. Dr. Basim Yusuf is a comedian and the subject of the new documentary, Tickling Giants, which covers his extraordinary career as a comedian in Egypt. It's available now at ticklinggiants.com. Basim Yusuf, thank you so much for joining us on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Actor Mayim Bialik took the traditional path to stardom. She first hit it big as Blossom, and then she got an advanced degree in neuroscience, then she hit it big again in the Big Bang Theory. We spoke to her in the spring, right after her character on the show had a very special day. I should say, before, I don't know how to do this, uh, congratulations on your character's marriage, which Thank was the Thank you, I appreciate that. Of the Big Bang Theory. Amy got married yes. uh, to Sheldon. Which is, uh, how, long, how long did that relationship take to develop uh, in either years of the characters or seasons? Well, uh, it's actually the same. We keep the years the same as the seasons. It took five years for them to even have coitus for the first time. Really? And then another two to get married. I, oh, that's very nice. I understand that that's exactly what either of your characters would call it. That is absolutely correct. <laughs> right. A lot of younger actors, uh, their show ends or whatever, and they, and they, let's be honest, they fade away because people don't want to see them as adults. They like them <laughs> as children. But you decided that you would go to school and you got yourself first a degree and then an advanced degree in neurobiology. Correct, in neuroscience. And then I had my I'm first so, son. I cannot keep you in any straight. I'm sorry. Confusing. You look alike. What can I tell you? I had my first son also in grad school and got pregnant with my second the week I filed my thesis. So what? I came out of the 12 years I left the industry with a PhD and two children. Right, <laughs> which is a pretty good hiatus if you're gonna take one. <laughs> you know, for 12 years, that's not bad. So, I mean, but uh, was it weird? Did people give you grief? You can't leave your acting business, you're a sitcom star. Um, yeah, but, but honestly, you know, the other kind of jobs and job opportunities that would have been available to me were other sitcoms, which no insult to sitcoms, because clearly they are how I make my living. Um, you know, I'm the, I'm the grandchild of immigrants, and I really wanted to go to college, and I wanted to um, be appreciated for the things inside of my head and not just sort of what I could offer people. Yeah. And I really, truly did fall in love with science in high school while being tutored on the set of uh, Blossom, and so I really wanted to explore science. Did the, did the tutor get in trouble for you, distracting you away from acting? <laughs> I don't think so. She's an oral surgeon, and she lives in Beverly Hills and has four children, and I'm sure drives a really nice car, I'm so sure I think her fine. life turned out okay. That's how we measure these things? So when you came, and then did you make a conscious decision to say, okay, I've got my doctorate, I'm going to go back to acting, or did these people start seeking you out? Oh, no. How about neither? Oh. Um, uh, option C was that no one was offering me work. Uh, I was running out of health insurance, and I figured if I can work here and there, at least I can get health insurance to support my toddler and newborn. So that's a much less romantic answer, but it's the true one. <laughs> yes, I understand that. Do you use your science knowledge on the um, show? 
sometimes, sometimes our, our writers or producers will ask, like, hey, what part of the brain would need to be messed up if we want these symptoms for a joke? Um, but, we, but a lot of the science can't be perfect because it also has to kind of work on television and work for comedy's sake. Right. So we know we're not perfect all of the time. Right. Do you, you never find yourself looking at the camera and going, no, it's not like this. No, and other actors don't, other actors don't appreciate when you, like, point things out that are wrong or flaunt your PhD. It doesn't go over well. Really? Uh, you've written now two books. The first was called Girling Up, and the new one is Boying Up. I've actually written four books. Oh, excuse me. this is the second of the series. You are, you are of course, correct, because you wrote a book about attachment parenting and a book about your vegan diet. But correct. these two books, these two books are about, they're books for young people about, I think, what they used to call when I was a young person, the changes that they go through. Correct. Um, Girling Up, I wrote a year ago, and it was a New York Times bestseller, which was very, very exciting. And Boying Up is about the process by which boys become men. And it's not simply, you know, the biology, puberty, physiology stuff, um, but also a bit more about the, the, uh, the kind of sociological processes by which we place men in our society um, with voices of real men throughout the book and also my experience as a mom raising two boys. Right. And are you aware of anybody who just, instead of having an awkward conversation with their child, just hands them your book and says, here, read this, talk to me next week? Um, you know what? I heard from so many parents that that's what they did with Girling Up, and yeah. so I have a 50% chance of that being true with this book. I, I, you know, I got to say, I would much rather have you do it. Here. I, I hear that from friends of mine all the time. Has anybody ever asked you to come over to their house? And so, would you yes, explain? several friends no, of mine. No, really? <laughs> would you tell me how they ask you to do that? Can you come over and talk to my child about puberty? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is really fun. I, I think we could talk a long time, but we have business to do because my Bialik, we have invited you here to play a game we're calling. Big Bang, meet Big Bang. So as we've discussed, you're a star in the Big Bang Theory the most popular show on TV, so we thought we'd ask you about some different Big Bangs, hair metal bands from the 80s. Wow. Get two out of three right, you'll win our prize for one of our listeners, the voice of anyone from our show they choose on their voicemail. Bill, who is scientist and actor Mayim Bialik playing for? Rishi Talati of Austin, Texas. All right. Okay. Ready to do this? Ready. For your first question, uh, it's Def Leppard. In that band's early days, Def Leppard once infuriated lead singer Joe Elliott's mother, Hal, did they do that, A, while writing the hit song, Pour Some Sugar On Me, Elliot poured sugar all over his mom's kitchen to see how it would inspire him. <laughs> B, mother was 20 minutes late to church because she had to wait for the entire band to finish drying their hair and get out of the bathroom. <laughs> or C, after the band crashed overnight in her house, she thought they had snuck girls in because of all the makeup on the sheets. I'm gonna go with C. You're right, it was C. They left a lot of makeup. I'm a huge Def Leppard fan. Are so you I'm really? I'm surprised I got that right. Are you actually a big Def Leppard fan? I am a very big Def Leppard fan. Wow. Did you ever do your hair like that? Uh, no, I didn't have enough. Okay. That was very good and very confident. Your next question is, many hair band stars have moved on to other careers, as in which of these? A, Brett Michaels of the band Poison now sells heavy metal-themed pet supplies called Pets rock. B, the members of Dokken help old rockers find more stable jobs in a seminar they call From Dokken to Dockers. Or C, John Karabi of Motley Crue is now Donald Trump's Secretary of Labor. <laughs> I'm going to go with B again. Uh, from Dokken to Dockers? Yes. No, it was actually Brett Michaels and his oh, pet supply shoot. brand, Pets Rock. Shoot. It's like you can get like those, you know, those, those yes. studded collars. You can get them for yes. your actual dog. <laughs> All right, this is exciting, though, because if you get the third one, you'll still win. 
Finally, some people have profited from hair bands in surprising ways, as in which of these? A, the manager of the Anthrax Forever website made $38 in ad revenue just from web hits in the week after 9-11. B, in 2010, an Arizona man got $5.50 when he successfully sold on eBay an air guitar that had been used at a Bon Jovi concert. <laughs> Or C, in 2002, a Connecticut woman selling a Jaguar on Craigslist made $2,000 over asking just by claiming it, it was the car Tony Katane writhed on top of in that famous Whitesnake video. I'm going with C. You're going to go with C, that the woman sold the Jaguar that Tony Katane writhed on? Yes. Even though she was in Connecticut? No, I'm afraid it was the air guitar. Oh, Jesus! <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Yes, that is hilarious. I just, I don't think, I mean, I'm sorry you lost, but your reaction to losing was great. Oh, for people's sake. <laughs> yes, in fact, uh, he advertised an air guitar that he said was used at a Bon Jovi concert, and <laughs> somebody sent him $5.50. I'm super fed up right now. I don't even want to hear you explain this. <laughs> uh, Bill, what was Mayim Bialik's score? Proving that even PhDs can have an off day, Mime, you got one out of three. I, I've, I've had so many people who've won in this show, but I've never enjoyed that more than... Listen, oh. this is... Thanks. Welcome. It's just... <laughs> Mayim Bialik is the author of the new book, Boying Up, a sequel to her New York Times bestseller, Girling Up. She's also a neuroscientist. She's the star of CBS's Big Bang Theory, which just wrapped up its season with her character's wedding. Maya Bialik, what an absolute delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Honored to be here. When we come back, we talk to freestyle skier and Olympic gold medalist David Wise about fashion. And actor Bradley Whitford explains how to be a hero on the West Wing and a villain in Get Out. That's in a minute on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. This podcast comes from NPR sponsor, the Glenlivet Scotch Whiskey. At the Glenlivet, they are firm believers that life is better when there's more inclusivity in it. That there's room at the bar for everyone. That's why they want you to enjoy their single malt the way you want. Neat, with soda, or with your cat. Their founder, George Smith, didn't distill his single malt with rules around it. He distilled his scotch for everyone to enjoy how they want it. Enjoy responsibly. 2018, the Glenlivet Distilling Company, New York, New York. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, host of the TED Radio Hour. And this week, we're going to explore just what it takes to speak up. Because whether it's asking for a raise or asking for equality, it requires courage to take that crucial step to say something. You can find the TED Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. From NPR and WBEZ Chicago, this is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR News Quiz. I'm Bill Curtis, and here is your host at the Chase Bank Auditorium in Chicago, Peter Sagal. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you. So... We've been giving thanks for the people who've been willing to come on our show. And one of the guests we're most thankful for this past year was David Wise, the gold medal winning Olympic freestyle skier. And not only because he flew across the country to join us on stage at Tanglewood in Western Massachusetts. It was also because he let us try on his medals backstage. <laughs> Peter asked him how he got them. Now I want to start by asking about your gold medal in Pyeongchang. Now, 
you get to make three runs in competition, and I don't know the technical term, but in the first two runs, you kind of blew it, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, technically, my ski blew it. Yeah. Do your ski actually like, pop it, off? Yeah. Both, both of my first two runs, ski popped off. Oh. How did that feel? What was that like? Yeah, it was a mix of uh, some of the most intense competition pressure I've ever felt in my life, and also kind of comical, because here I am... My job, the one thing that I'm not supposed to do is blow it at the Olympics, right? right? <laughs> you put four years of effort into this, thousands of hours of training, and as long as you just don't blow it at the Olympics, everything's going to be fine. And I was just like, wow, maybe this is the day I blow it at the Olympics. And uh, that, that actually helped me, like thinking about it from that perspective, kind of helped me lighten the pressure on my shoulders a little bit and just be like, hey, look, uh, first of all, for my third run, we cranked the bindings down as tight as they go. So... Uh, my legs were going to come off before the skis did. <laughs> so I was like, all right, I got one more shot at this. I'm going to let it rip. Yeah. And fortunately, the skis stayed on. I made it to the bottom. And, uh, As it were. We it, was, it, was, it was an almost perfect run, and you actually walked away with it. Did and you ever think after the first time they came off, like, I'm not an expert skier, but I'd be like, let's make those tighter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's... The, the inside intel for that is yes, that actually yeah. it was three different runs and on three different pairs of skis. So a lot of people ask me, why didn't you just change skis? And I'm like, guys, <laughs> give me a little more credit than that. Like, yeah, the binding came off on the first one. I didn't just put those skis back on my feet and try again. Yeah. Oh, well, shoot. Hey. <laughs> I don't know why that came off. Let's Let me just, just try, try again. again. <laughs> no, I... I <laughs> I, I was prepared. I, one of the things that I thought watching both you guys in the, in the skiing and the snowboarding, you're flying up in the air. Is there a moment where you just have to get over how scary that is early on? Or is that like when you find out who's going to go on and who's not when they're like... That's kind of the difference between people who are, are pretty good at skiing halfpipe and people who are really good at skiing halfpipe. And uh, I'm going to downgrade myself in everybody's eyes. It's mostly the stupid people who do really, really well in halfpipe because you just... <laughs> You just let it rip. Right. You're like, oh, well, that was really scary, but I'm going to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> this is extremely dangerous, it, but it, I'm it, having so much fun. Is it, is, it as, is it as dangerous? I mean, it looks easy, of course. You make it look easy. That's your job. It also looks dangerous. Is it dangerous? No, yeah. I, I mean, I joke about it, but it, it's pretty calculated. Yes, it's dangerous. Yes, I'm taking a risk. But um, aren't all good things in life worth a little bit of risk? You know? like. Mm. So, why is it, why is it called... A half pipe. Seriously, why is it called half pipe? You don't know. Do you want to do you want to think about that a little? <laughs> no, is it because the whole? Is it? It sounds so like. So if you put two of them together, it might be a whole pipe. No, but oh, that, it's like a giant pipe. I always thought that the that the half pipe referred to what you're on, what you're attached to. The, the pipe is refers to the whole thing. So a whole pipe would be insane. Yeah. You, yeah. You, you could do cool tricks, but we wouldn't be able to see them because they would be inside a pipe. <laughs> yeah. So if you, when you do freestyle, it's like, hey, I'm just going to improvise. Freestyle. Or do you always know what you're going to do before you do a run? Uh, yeah, we're, we're pretty aware of what we're going to do ahead of time. So it's more like uh, a little contained. Yeah. <laughs> the Wait, so the, the Alonzo, freedom. Why don't you just go for it and ask him if he does it on snow? We're at that level. <laughs> no, I'm just. I think I know. Are you doing this, the thing? Like, this is really falling are apart. You doing, are you doing the thing where they said like they like 
He buttered that biscuit. Like, I remember it was I, yeah. I so want so, you, so. Mo, to work as a ski commentator at the next Olympics. David, when they told you you were coming to NPR, you didn't think it would go this way. No, I, did, I did not. Wow. I did not know it was going to go this way. No. Well, we have surprised you, but we have more surprises in store because, David Wise, we've invited you here to play a game we're calling Bland is the New Black. So, as we have established, you're a champion freestyle skier, but what do you know about being free of style? We're going to ask you three questions about normcore. That is the brief fashion trend of just a few years ago when the hip thing to do was to be as boring as possible. Answer two questions about Normcore. You'll win our prize for one of our listeners, the voice of anyone they like in their voicemail. Bill, who is David Wise playing for? Jack Hewis of Williamstown, Massachusetts. Not far from here. He might be here. Does this ring any bells? Normcore? You ever come across this? I have. This is. Yeah, this, this, this was a me. thing. Happened around 2014. I all right. It. Here we go. Like all great fashion trends, Normcore has a kind of stylistic god, somebody whose dress exemplifies everything it is meant to express to be a norm person. Which of these is Norm Core's icon? A, Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia. <laughs> B, Jerry Seinfeld. Or C, anyone working at any Best Buy. Ooh. I, think it's, I think it's definitely C. Best Buy? Like Best one Buy. of those guys, Geek Squad, Best Buy guys? Yeah. No, it was actually Jerry Seinfeld. Oh. Jerry Seinfeld was held forth as like, this is Norm this Core, is this is normal. Okay, David, here's your next question. In the midst of the trend, Car and Driver magazine listed their five most normcore cars. What were they? A, nothing normcore people take buses. B, the five cars were a PT Cruiser, a Dodge Neon, a Honda Civic, a Chevy Impala, and literally your father's Oldsmobile. Or C, five Toyota Camrys. <laughs> I'm going to have to go with B. You're going to go with B, a PT Cruiser, Dodge Neon, Honda Civic, and literally normal. your father's Oldsmobile. Oh, oh, oh gosh. Oh. I, Wrong audience. They don't like it. Um, Ooh, sorry. No, they don't like I that one. I was thinking it was I, B, but what do I know? <laughs> they want you to pick C. What do you say? I say that's probably very accurate. You're, they are. They're exactly right. It was yeah, five Toyota Camrys. Five different Camry models. If you want normal, you can't do better than a Camry. So here we go. This is coming down to the third try, just like oh. you're used to. <laughs> so, some fashion people described an offshoot of normcore for mature women who had earned the freedom to ignore the dictates of fashion. What was that fashion trend called? A. Normacore. B. Sagwear. Or C. Menacore, style for post menopausal woman. <laughs> I'm going to go with A. You're going to go with A? I'm going to go with a strong A. Oh, no. It was C. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh my Jack, God. I've really let you I down. I know, I know. Oh, my God. I can't believe Metacore, it. Metacore, the oh. implication is once you hit menopause, you no longer have to care about, you know, appealing to other people. Oh. <laughs> this is so wrong. Yes. I think they might stop I throwing. did not make this up, ladies and gentlemen. I am bringing He's you the news. just the messenger, folks. Bill, how did David Wise do in our quiz? Well, David, you got a bronze, but, <laughs> but know this, yeah. God is still pleased. I yeah. think so. <laughs> David Wise is a two-time Olympic gold medal winner. His new children's book, Very Bear and the Butterfly, is available now. And you can see David with his family doing some remarkable things and saying some wise things at 
MrDavidWise.com. David Wise, thank you so much for joining us. And wait, wait, don't tell me. David Wise, everybody. Support for NPR and the following message comes from ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds the right people for you and actively invites them to apply. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. based on hiring sites with over 1,000 reviews on Trustpilot. And right now, listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com wait. Support for this podcast also comes from Sotheby's Institute of Art, offering educational programs, including fully accredited master's degrees, online courses, and summer courses for adults and teenagers. Learn about the business side of art, art history, how galleries and auction houses work, and how to begin your career in the art world in New York, London, and Los Angeles. Learn more at sotheby'sinstitute.com. Senior White House advisor Josh Lyman was the most intelligent and effective political operative ever, Sadly, he's fictional. That being the case, we had to settle for talking with the actor who played him, Bradley Whitford. He joined us in the spring, and Peter asked him about playing the villain in the horror film, Get Out. So in this movie, you play this guy who turns out to be pretty evil. And do you think that you were cast in the role in part because to so many, you're Josh Lyman, well-meaning, great White House aide who wants everything that's good? Yes, because that's exactly what Jordan said. He really? Yeah. yeah. He, he said, uh, who is a better portrayer of predictable liberalism than me? Yeah. <laughs> the whole family is like that. Between Allison yeah. Williams and yeah. Catherine Keener, it's all people who people are like, oh, I like that person. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I loved brilliant. her in that other movie, in yeah. that TV show. And now, my God, what are they doing? <laughs> well, speaking for the black people, we didn't like you. <laughs> <laughs> we, we weren't. You were charmed. I'm sure you're a nice guy and all that. But yeah, we, no, we, we no. had a meeting. We had a talk. <laughs> we, we didn't like you. I get I get very strange looks. I was uh, getting some food in a strip mall, and they only took cash, and I didn't have it. And the woman said there was a cash machine in the barber shop next door, and I walked into like the set of the barber shop, and there were ten African American guys there, and I walked in, and they said, "Oh my God." <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the West Wing because I know, I mean, like, I grew up a Trekkie and I have been to Star Trek conventions. So Star Trek fans are obsessive. They are as nothing compared to West Wing fans. Yeah, they're, uh, we call them, like, wing nuts. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and people seem to love that show because it represents the world, at least the one that they wish they could live in. Of like, yeah, liberal progressive porn. It really is. <laughs> Were you guys... Really well-informed... Well-intentioned people, let's just watch them solve it. <laughs> <laughs> were you, when you were making the show, which of course was during the Bush administration, it was for the yeah. most part, it was on the air, were you aware of that, that you were providing kind of an alternative reality to comfort people who were not enjoying living in the real world at that time? Yeah, Bush, by the way, looks like Abby Hoffman now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was, it, it was weird because there was a time where... It was kind of sad. I mean, the only 
upright Democrats were fictional, and it was odd and sort of uh, it became a alternative universe. I want to ask you about the new movie, uh, which is The Post. It's about The Washington Post, which is pretty great. Your character seems to be kind of a vague bad guy who's standing next to uh, Kay Graham, played by Meryl Streep, and telling her not to do the right thing because it's not prudent. Actually, that character is, I think, the only character in the movie who is not real, which is interesting. He's sort of an amalgamation of... Oh, these, these, this is my child screaming at me. Oh. Hang on. Hey, baby. Uh, I, uh, I'm on the radio. You gotta be quiet. <laughs> I love they're used to they're used to me saying uh, not now. Yeah. How 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 old is your child? Is it a boy or girl? Can you hear? The, uh, that is my 15 year old daughter. And right. I. <laughs> <laughs> is no respect. Of course not. Of course not. Like, uh, like one of them said to me once, a really devastating thing. He said, come on, Dad. I've seen dogs be good in movies. Whoa! <laughs> and the worst thing about that is that's an absolutely true statement. It really is. <laughs> All right, Bradley Whitford, we have asked you here to play a game we're calling... Headless Body and Topless Bar. That, of course... <laughs> was the most famous headline ever run by the New York Post. And we thought, since you're starring in a movie about the Washington Post, we'd ask you three questions about the other, less stodgy post, the one in New York. Answer two questions right, and you'll win a prize for one of our listeners, the voice of anybody on this show they may like. Bill, who is Bradley Whitford playing for? Nicholas Godfrey, Louisville, Kentucky. All right. You ready to do this? Is that his name, or is, is that where he's from? Uh, his name is Nicholas Godfrey. Oh, okay, from Louisville. He's from Louisville. Got it. Wait a minute, did, did you think his name was Nicholas Godfrey, Louisville, Kentucky? Yeah. I was impressed. <laughs> it is. All right, here's your first question uh, about the New York Post is actually about that famous headline, Headless Body in Topless Bar. It ran on the front page in uh, 1983, but it almost didn't run in the Post. Why? A because it offended the delicate sensibility of the paper's owner, Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> B, because fact checkers at the paper could not be sure if the bar was indeed a topless bar. Or C, because they ran out of capital S's in the compositing room and had to carve a new one to finish the word topless. B. You're gonna go for B, you are right. This is an amazing story. There's this gruesome crime in New York, and the editors say, well, run a headline, Headless Body in Topless Bar. And they said, but is it really a topless bar? They sent somebody out to check. <laughs> and it turned out to be, so they could run the headline. Next question, known for its gossip pages, sometimes the Post has done public service journalism, as when they did what in 1989? A, gave students the answers to an important statewide test by printing them on its front page. <laughs> B, published a fold-it-yourself cardboard knife in case you got mugged. Or C, printed a full-color rat identification guide so New Yorkers could tell the Norway rat from the common brown rat. C. No, it was actually A. They printed the answers to the New York State Regents exam on their front page. And because the Post published the answers, the quiz was canceled. Yay! All right, last question, and if you get this one, you win it all. Australian Carl Allen, also known as Carl Pot was the editor-in-chief of The Post from 2001 to 2016. He was known for what quirky habit? A, sniping at people in the newsroom with a BB gun. 
B, urinating into his office wastebasket during meetings, or C, shouting, bye, crikey, every few seconds. What's the post? I'm sure he's urinating in the trash can. You're right. Yes, of course, that's what he's doing. In fact, he was so famous for doing this throughout his career that when he came to the post, they gifted him with a brand new wastebasket. <laughs> Bill, how did Bradley Whitford do in our quiz? Two out of three. You won, Bradley. Good for you. Bradley Whitford is starring in the new film, The Post. Bradley Whitford, thank you so much for joining us on Wait, Wait, Time Promise. What a joy to talk to you. My pleasure. That does it for this Thanksgiving edition of our show. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is a production of NPR and WBEZ Chicago in association with Urgent Haircut Productions, Doug Berman, Benevolent Overlord. Philip Godica writes our limericks. Our house manager is Tyler Green, assisted by Simon Tran and Mary Dolium. Our interns are Catherine Coates and Zoe Lowenberg. Our web guru is Beth Novi. B.J. Lederman composed our theme. Our program is produced by Jennifer Mills, Miles Dernboss, and Lillian King. Peter Gwynn appears courtesy of Capitol Records. Technical direction is from Lorna White. Public address announcer is Paul Friedman. Our master of operations is Colin Miller. Our production coordinator is Robert Newhouse. Our senior producer is Ian Chillog. And the executive producer of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is Michael Vanford. Thanks to Bill Curtis, all of the panelists you heard, all of our special guests, and also thanks to you for listening. I am Peter Sagal. We will see you next week. This is NPR.